0: Hello and good evening my fellow geeks, Reggie here again with another hour of geeky news, views and reviews and stuff. Um, We've only got a couple of things to go over tonight, I suspect it's going to take us the full hour to get through both. Might have a chance to throw in some reviews of comics at the end, might not actually, although the first thing is going to be comics based and we'll get to it in a second. Just a very quick apology if this sounds a little bit rushed. I won't have had chance to go through and take out all the intakes of breath and all the ums and ers that I'm bound to make. This is because this show goes out at 8pm on a Thursday evening on Harrogate Community Radio. Uh, it's subsequently on the podcast feed and it gets repeated, but it has to be finished and done and up on the site by, well, ideally now, as I'm recording this at 9 o'clock on a Thursday morning. Uh, It certainly needs to be up there a a good hour before the show airs. And, um, well, normally that's not a problem, because what I normally do is record the show on a Monday and a Tuesday. But this week, there's been a bit of a problem. I did, in fact, record the show on a Monday and a Tuesday. Uh, All that was left for me to do, which I would normally have done yesterday on, on a Wednesday, was, you know, the final engineering cleanups, the levelling, the, the sound levels, and all the, the behind-the-scenes stuff that you really don't care about. I didn't get a chance to do it yesterday for various reasons, so I thought, oh, I've got time on Thursday morning, I'll get it done then. So today I went to my computer, opened it up, and the recording wasn't there. It just vanished. Poof! I do not know what's happened to it. I can probably recover it. But as I sit here at my dining room table, sorry, in my high tech recording studio uh, on a Thursday morning, I figure, given that I know what I need to say, because I've said it once already, um, I can probably re-record the thing faster than I can recover the data that's been lost. So, buckle up, folks. It's going to be an interesting ride. Okay. It also gives me a chance, I'm going to be honest, to just jiggle with the order a little bit, because in the original recording, there was going to be some space news first, and that will be coming up. But I figure, having sat through the Today programme on Radio 4 this morning, I think there's something I need to talk about first. This was in the original show. This is kind of an elongated, extended cut of the thoughts that I took five minutes to express in the original show. I suspect this is going to take me a wee bit longer. I want to talk about Robin. Now, if you have been listening to the news today, I haven't seen the papers yet, but I imagine it's in the papers as well. There's been a bit of news about Robin. That is to say, Robin, as in Batman and Robin, not the Reliant Robin or the song, songbird of the similar name. What that news is, we'll get to. I mean, you probably already know, but um, we'll get to it. But... The first thing I want to do is talk a little bit about who exactly Robin is, because every report I've seen or heard thus far, unless it was from dedicated uh, comics news sites and even then, um, has got bits wrong and that really annoys me. I was listening to the Today programme this morning when they covered this story. And the reporter was talking to the person who wrote the story that's in question, which we'll get to in a bit. And she still made basic factual errors about the character. Now, I know, I know, I know. I'm a geek. These things bother me. But actually, that's not a geeky thing. That's a just do your job as a reporter thing. The whole point about journalists is that when they do stuff, they're supposed to know what they're talking about. They're supposed to research it. Okay, calm yourself, Reggie. Right, there have been several characters who have been Robin. Okay, Robin is not so much a name anymore as a job title. So, the Robin that's in question in the news today, as I record this on the 12th of August 2021, is Tim Drake. He was not the first Robin, the first Robin was Dick Grayson, or Master Richard, as Alfred would call him. Um, now, Dick Grayson was a young circus performer. He was part of a circus act called The Flying Graysons. Uh, he was an acrobat, a trapeze artist. Uh, he was about nine or ten years old, and you know his thing was to be the, the comic relief as his parents the Flying Graysons did the, like, serious, dangerous stuff. But, you know, he was well-trained. There was an incident at the circus, and his parents were killed, murdered, in fact. At that circus performance was Bruce Wayne, who saw Dick's parents die, and, you know, having lost his own parents at a similar age, felt the need to intervene in a way that you absolutely would not be allowed to now. And... As Batman, Bruce solved the murder, brought Dick's parents' killers to justice. As Bruce Wayne, he adopted young Dick Grayson, uh, and Dick Grayson became Bruce Wayne's ward. Now, I don't think that's how that system works, although it might be how the system would have worked in 1940 when that story was written. So that was the first Robin, and he became essentially a plot device. He was the character that either... Batman needed to rescue, or Batman explained the plot to, so that younger readers would know what was going on. That was the purpose of Robin then. He was the representative of the reader, who at the time were considered to be, you know, young boys about 10, 11 years old. Dick Grayson remained Robin in what I can only describe as one of the stupidest costume designs ever, For more than 40 years in, you know, actual real time. How long he was Robin in comics time depends who you ask. Various writers tried to do various interesting things with him. And over time, the character did age. Until by the mid-80s, Dick Grayson was kind of college age. And still running around in green swimming trunks and pixie boots. This was probably unsustainable from uh, suspending your disbelief point of view. And eventually, the decision was taken by the back book editorial team that it was time for a bit of a change. So, Dick Grayson went off to college, ditched the Robin outfit and the Robin name, and became Nightwing, a char- the character that he still is. Okay, Dick Grayson is still in the DC universe, he's still part of the Bat family, he goes by the name Nightwing, he's much cooler than Robin ever was. And that, of course, left Batman flying solo. And that was thought to not be a great idea, because because the function that was served by Robin still needed to be performed. So, it was the late-ish 80s at this point, and... The decision was made to go with a different kind of Robin, someone a bit darker, someone a bit cooler. So, enter Jason Todd. Now, Jason Todd was a kid in the system. Uh, his parents were—I I forget whether they were dead or whether he was estranged from them or what—but he was, you know, he was in the system, and he was a bit of a tearaway. In the the now definitive origin of batman's first meeting with jason todd jason todd is nicking the wheels off the batmobile okay that's the kid that jason todd was and it's got to be said that as a character jason todd was not immediately universally liked he was a very different character from dick grayson which of course he was or what would would, would have been the point of the change and you know fans were not entirely happy with it Over time, I think they started doing interesting things with the character. Uh, You may be aware of the Batman rule about not killing. There were suggestions that Jason Todd maybe didn't quite buy into that. And they were going interesting places with the character, I think. But the writers weren't given much of a chance to do that. Because a couple of years after Jason Todd was introduced, they had this really bright idea to do a phone poll uh, to decide the end of a story. So, they wrote a story called A Death in the Family. This was about Jason Todd's search for his mother. It also involved um, the Joker and the Ayatollah Khomeini and, you know, a bunch of other stuff that was equally implausible and I really don't like this story. What I dislike the most about this story is that it was a choose-your-own-ending style. There were two endings of that story written. One in which Jason Todd survives, is reunited with his mother, and they all go and live happily ever after. And another in which Jason Todd is brutally beaten to death by the Joker. Obviously, the actual way things would end was not revealed. But there was a phone poll making it very clear that dial this number for Robin to live, Dial this number for Robin to die. And you should never do things like that because the public is fickle and will do anything for a laugh. You may remember Boaty McBoatface from a couple of years ago. And yeah, of course, everybody dialed the kill him number. Although there is an interesting fable. I don't know whether it's true or not. I have heard it from several different sources. But, you know, comics discussion can be a bit of an echo chamber. There is a a fable that there was a guy who rigged up his very early, late 80s computer system to phone the kill him number every 30 seconds for two days or something. And therefore, actually, one guy is responsible for the death of Robin. Don't know whether I buy into that or not, but it's a nice story. Anyway, Jason Todd, dead. kaput. Uh, he got better, as characters often do. And Jason Todd is now back in the Bat family as the Red Hood. That's probably a discussion for another time. So, Robin number two, dead. Robin number one, gone off to be his own man. Enter Robin number three. Who is the Robin in question in the news this week? Tim Drake. The story behind Tim Drake is that after the death of Jason Todd, Batman was flying solo for a bit again. And honestly, he wasn't doing very well. His behaviour was becoming, you know, a little bit more erratic. He was a little bit darker. And the young Tim Drake figured this out and realised that Batman needs a Robin. Now, the way he figured this out is quite nice. As As a character, Tim is much closer to Dick than he is to Jason. But he's very different from both because Tim Drake is really clever. So... The story behind Tim Drake's discovery of who Batman is and what's gone on is this. Tim Drake was a massive fan of the Flying Graysons when he was a child. In particular, he idolized Dick Grayson because, you know, Tim was a little kid, Dick Grayson was a slightly older kid, and, you know, he looked up to him and thought he was great. And he wanted to be a gymnast when he grew up because of Dick Grayson. And so Tim did do some gymnastic training and stuff like that. But remember also, very clever, very observant. There was a particular signature move that Dick Grayson did, a kind of somersaulty thing. And obviously, as a young kid uh, growing up around Gotham City, he was also fascinated by Batman and Robin as a, when he was a child. And one evening, watching the news, there was some footage of Batman and Robin in action. And he saw Robin do that same signature move that he knew Dick Grayson could do. Now, once you figured out that Robin was Dick Grayson, doesn't take a lot of figuring out to think, well, he appeared as Robin after Dick Grayson went to live with Bruce Wayne. Oh my goodness, is Bruce Wayne Batman? And in that way, Tim Drake figured out who Batman and Robin were a couple of years before the story that introduced him is supposed to have been set. And he also realised, because he paid attention to these things, that at some point, Robin had changed. Now, if you know that Bruce Wayne is Batman, and you know that he's adopted another kid, then, again, oh, so that kid that Bruce Wayne's just adopted, that must be the new Robin. And so when it's reported on the news that the ward of Bruce Wayne, Jason Todd, has been killed in a terrible accident, and Robin disappears again, you know exactly what's gone on. And Tim Drake figured this out too. And he noticed the change in Batman's behaviour again from the news and stuff. And so he went to find Bruce Wayne to volunteer to be Robin on the grounds that Batman needs Robin. And that is who Tim Drake is, ladies and gentlemen. He's very clever. He's very observant. He's very determined. And he is extraordinarily compassionate. Tim has always been the, the, kind of, the kind one in the Bat family, since he was introduced in, I'm going to say 1990, it might have been 1991, not entirely sure. Could look it up, but as said in the introduction, running out of time now. Now, subsequent to that, Tim also aged and moved on. There have been a couple of people in the Robin suit since Tim Drake. Tim's girlfriend, Stephanie Brown who has also been Batgirl for a bit, uh, stood in as Robin for a while. Um, and uh, right now, the canonical Robin is Damian Wayne, who is the son of Bruce Wayne and Talia al Ghul. Talia al Ghul is the daughter of Rash al Ghul, who you may mem- remember from Batman Begins, uh, but just he, he's a massive eco-terrorist, okay? Uh, and Talia al Ghul is part of the League of Assassins. She raised Damien in secret. Bruce didn't know he existed for a while, and raised him to be an assassin, and then dumped him on Bruce's doorstep, pretty much. I think originally the point was that Damien was going to kill Bruce, but anyway, they've, they've made it up now. And Damien is now the canonical Robin. There is, of course, also Carrie Kelly, who is a Robin from the of the future in um, Frank Miller's Dark Knight Returns. Uh, let's not get into the complexities of that. So, Tim Drake is in the news. Now, the media keep calling him Robin. I'm not sure he's going by Robin as a character anymore, because that's Damian Wayne. He was Red Robin last time I paid any attention. But whatever. The media's calling him Robin. He's been a Robin. That'll do. The big story. OK, and you if, you haven't, if you're wearing pearls, you may want to get ready to clutch them. If you aren't wearing pearls, you might want to go and get some so that you can clutch them when I tell you that the big story that's broken this week is that Tim Drake is (coughs) bisexual. (gasps) Okay, hands up anybody who cares? No, I don't. Some people do, and I'm going to explain why they probably shouldn't in a minute, but really? Media? Come on. Kami's character is not straight. So what? It didn't merit 10 minutes on the Today programme this morning. The Today programme is Radio 4's news programme of record. I wouldn't have minded if they'd mentioned it, but... 10 minutes? Dude! The Taliban are marching on Kabul! There are more important things! Anyway... I have seen some comment online about Tim being bi. That's basically the same as the comment that there was online when Alan Scott, who was the original Green Lantern in the 1940s, came out as gay in DC Comics. I mean, in DC Comics, these are fictional characters, people, that people are getting all upset about, but hey. Now, my answer to those critics who say, no problem with. A bisexual character, no problem with a gay character. But why take a character whose sexuality is already established as straight and wreck on it? Change it. Make it you know make them from being straight into being bi, or make them from being straight into being gay. Why do that? Why not just create a new character? Well, it's actually quite simple. For a start, the sexuality of Tim Drake or Alan Scott, not actually established. Alan Scott was seen in the 1940s comics to be a bit of a womanizer, a bit of a ladies' man. Tim Drake has had girlfriends. Uh, Stephanie Brown would be the obvious example of this. So what? That doesn't mean they're straight. Alan Scott was a character from the 1940s, a time when being homosexual was illegal in many countries. Illegal in this country, certainly. I'm not sure if it was ever illegal in America. Genuinely not sure. Uh, But it was certainly a difficult thing to be. Uh, you probably weren't going to tell people about it and you were probably going to try and hide it. So of course Alan Scott in the 1940s was a bit of a ladies man. He was making it very clear that hey everybody look at me not being gay because it was the 1940s it was a difficult thing to be. Maybe he was lying to himself, maybe he was just hiding his sexuality that doesn't mean it's impossible that he could have been gay. There were many men in the 1940s who were gay, not by, actually gay, who were married and had children, because that's what you did. That's what society pushed you into doing. We live in a much more liberated time now, as far as sexuality goes. And honestly, it's still difficult to be... Gay or bi or anything other than cis and heterosexual, to be honest, but it's a lot easier than it used to be, and there's a lot less reason to hide. So, I think we miss that subtlety. As for Tim, yes, he's had girlfriends. Okay, it's not unrealistic for a character to not identify as bisexual. or not come to terms with their own feelings about their sexuality until well into their twenties or even thirties. That's not unusual at all. I have friends who came out to me as bi in their late twenties. So it's not in any way unreasonable that Tim would come out now. He might only really just have come to terms with the way he feels. And in fact, the story in which this happens, which is in the latest issue of Batman Urban Legends, issue 6, which is sold out before you ask me at Destination Venus, so really sorry. You can have a read of my copy if you want. But that story does kind of show Tim trying to figure out how he feels about this young man that he's working with. And he's struggling with it. He's not sure how he feels. He's not quite ready to, to admit this feeling to himself. And then at the end of the story he goes to the young man's house and they kind of both say let's go on a date. And it's it's quite a sweet ending to a very good story written by a, a writer called Megan Fitzmartin whose work I don't think I've come across before but if this is a representative sample I think she's pretty good. So that's the story and that's why I don't care about I mean I I care about it in that I like that there's some representation in the bat family I like that um and actually you know what I do like that they've taken an established character and confirmed that they have that particular sexuality because representation matters and it's all very well for straight people like me to say why take an established character and decide that they're going to be by. why not create a new character? I'll tell you why it matters, I think, that we've taken an established character. It's because often when characters are created and they're created specifically to have a particular sexuality or indeed to be a particular ethnicity or whatever, when a character is created to tick a diversity box, often that character can become defined by whatever box it is they're ticking and I don't want that whereas we know Tim already okay I've known Tim Drake since he first appeared in 1990 1991 whenever that was so I've known Tim Drake for 30 years and now I know something else about Tim Drake that I didn't know before and I'm cool with that and I think that's actually better representation If we're going to do it, let's do it properly. So, kudos to DC. As I say, it's the second time DC have done this. Um, They've revealed that Alan Scott was gay, as previously, previously discussed. They're doing really well at DC on this representation thing. And in spite of the howls of protest from various points on the internet about forced diversity and wokeness and all of that other nonsense, They're not making a big fanfare out of it, really. They're not making a fuss. They're just saying, oh, by the way, this guy? Yeah, this thing about him." So I like that. What I'm not particularly cool with is the way this has been reported by the, I'm going to call it mainstream media, uh, the BBC and other online places. As I say, I haven't seen the papers today, but I can only imagine what a couple of them are saying. There's always been this thing, this joke thing about Batman and Robin Gay. And it was particularly disappointing on the Today programme, as I say, Radio 4's news programme of record, that the reporter was clearly trying to get Megan Fitzmartin, who was interviewed on the Today programme this morning, to kind of say, well, yeah, there could be something going on between Batman and Tim. Oh, yeah, there could be. There could be. And I'm really pleased that Fitzmartin just shut that down and said, no, 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 no. The Batman-Tim relationship is a father and son relationship. OK, there's nothing sexual there at all. Forget about it. But that question shouldn't have been asked. Come on. And there are all kinds of reasons why you don't you don't put that out into the world. Um, that's a little bit of bigotry about gay men that's been going around for an awfully long time. You know, the, the quack psychiatrist Frederick Wortham in the 1950s was casting illusions on the relationship between Batman and Robin, trying, you know, as a scaremongering tactic. And you know, and that's always hung around. And it's ignorant and it's bigoted. And I really wish people would stop it. And I was very disappointed to hear that nonsense sort of trying to be pushed on the BBC today. Uh, I'm normally a big supporter of the BBC, but they did badly this morning. Anyway. This could easily trip into the boring and preachy part. And I don't want to do that. I've been talking about this for nearly half an hour now. So I think, I think I've probably said everything I want to say about this. I'm completely at ease and totally relaxed with Tim being bisexual. Just as I was totally relaxed with his sexuality when, if I'd thought about it at all, which I don't think I had, I thought he was straight. It doesn't matter. It's an aspect of him. It does not define him. Just as with actual people who really exist. Because that's the other thing. He's a made-up character. Okay? He's not real. So please, all the people who are getting annoyed about it, stop it and do something useful. There are more important things happening in the world today. All the people who are celebrating it, celebrate away. It's nice to be recognised. It's nice to see yourself. I'm pleased that my bi friends can now see some representation of themselves. In one of the cooler characters in the Bat family, actually. So, yeah. Good on DC, I think is what I'm saying. Good on them. And now, this. Okay, once again, buckle up, folks, because I've got a lot to say about space this week. I think, as I'm recording, that this may be pretty much the only other segment in the show. Because I have positive news about the Battle of the Billionaires. To recap, Elon Musk, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson, everybody's favourite trio of actual Bond villains, are kind of in their own little mini-egotistical space race. And each of them is having, you know, little milestone wins at the moment. I still maintain... That the only one with any reason to actually be proud of themselves right now is Elon Musk. Because however many problems I have with Elon Musk, and I've got a lot, SpaceX, his space company, is doing the job, man. Um, They are putting people in orbit right now. They're putting cargo in orbit right now. I don't think they've launched a satellite yet, but they've taken humans and supplies to the International Space Station many, many, many times. The Starship rocket I have some issues with the number of engines it's got. I think that's genuinely problematic. But better engineers than me are cool about it, so okay. Okay. And the Starship rocket is capable of taking people to the moon. Something that humanity has not had the capability to do since the mid 70s and hasn't done since 1972. Elon Musk's company has built a rocket that has the potential to do that. That's pretty cool. OK, so, yes, his Starlink constellation of satellites is going to kill ground based astronomy. And he has some fairly questionable views and some fairly questionable working practices. and. His cars are overpriced, although he did put one in space and that was cool too. But, you know, there is no question, SpaceX is a serious space engineering company that will do good things. So, you know, there's that. Bezos and Branson really don't have much claim on the moral high ground because unlike SpaceX... Blue Origin, which is Bezos's company, and Virgin Galactic, which is Branson's company, have a tourism based model. Their model is not, hmm, how can we progress humanity's knowledge? How can we assist the advancement of science in space? Their business model is, okay, let's give some rich people a thrill ride! And You know, I'm acknowledging my own hypocrisy here. If I had the money, I would pay it and I would go on one of the aforementioned thrill rides. But I would feel bad about it. And I do acknowledge, I would absolutely acknowledge that I was abusing my privilege somewhat. Were I able to do that? Because it doesn't advance anything. If taking tourists to space was some way of funding... The development of better craft for, you know, know, so that science could be done better and exploration could be done better. That would be one thing. That's not what they're doing. Okay, they're not really advancing anything. They're making their own vehicles better, but they're not really advancing the state of the art here. The. New Shepard spacecraft that Blue Origin uses. It's basically Mercury Redstone which was the first crewed American space flight with Alan Shepard. It's basically a fairly low-powered rocket that's not capable of putting the capsule it's carrying into orbit and a capsule that can take some people. It's bigger than Mercury, but it's, you know, it doesn't advance us anywhere. And the Virgin Galactic Spaceship 2 concept, it's a cool space plane, but it's not really doing anything that... That the Americans weren't doing in the 50s and 60s with the um x-15 project so again it's not taking us anywhere it's more comfortable but it's not doing anything that we couldn't already have done if anyone could have been bothered to build it the way the spaceship 2 re-enters without a heat shield that's quite groundbreaking but I don't think it's practical if you've been on an orbital flight, because I don't think the kind of shuttlecock technology—that's what they call it—basically the wings fold up and they make a big surface area and it comes down like a shuttlecock for a bit. Um, I don't think that that would be able to deal with the kind of speed you'd be doing if you'd been in orbit. So it's actually only good for suborbital stuff. And well, as I say, that doesn't really advance us anywhere. So having said all of that, Bezos and Branson. I've just gone up in my estimations a little bit. So, how have they done that? Well, before I tell you that, I need to introduce you to another character. A guy called Alan Dean. Now, Alan Dean is a remarkable man. He's in his early 60s now. Uh, He has worked in space science for a long time. He's one of the foremost planetary scientists on the planet. Okay? Okay. He's a serious scientist. He's a serious engineer. He knows his stuff. He was, in fact, the principal investigator, which is like project manager, of the New Horizons project, which is the um, space probe that a few years ago went out past the orbit of Pluto and took the first really good pictures of Pluto that we've ever had. And that craft, I don't think he's P.I.ing it anymore, but that craft is now out in the Earth cloud and... Doing its thing, still returning its science, still teaching us about the way the solar system is constructed and indeed how the solar system was formed. So, you know, serious guy. Now, in a few weeks, Alan Dean will climb aboard the Spaceship 2 Unity craft, which will be docked with a White Knight 2 carrier aircraft, which will carry Unity um, to a pretty good altitude. it will then drop unity unity will ignite its rocket engines and head up into what we can arguably suggest might be something approaching space Uh, the the definition of where space starts and stuff is always always in question but you know pretty high let's go with that and then return to the ground uh, and bring alan dean back home so far so space tourism It's exactly the same flight, really, that Richard Branson did a couple of weeks ago that I was fairly critical of as nothing more than a bit of a joyride. But this is different because Alan Dean is a scientist and he's taking experiments with him. And that, for me, is a game changer. It has emerged that it's possible to buy space on a Virgin Galactic and, as I understand it, a Blue Origin spaceflight, or suborbital hop, or whatever we're going to call them, for scientific experiments. This could be a proper game-changer. Now, let me explain. There are lots of experiments that you need microgravity for, and that's one of the purposes of the International Space Station. But it is extraordinarily expensive to take things to the International Space Station. So... The, the, the scope for the research that can be done is limited by cost. You've got to have a lot of money if you want your, your experiment to be done on the ISS. So only very big companies or countries can do this. But there is a lot of science that you can do that you need to be very high for maybe out of the atmosphere or in the very highest reaches of the atmosphere, that doesn't require microgravity or that doesn't require microgravity for very long. Uh, Quick jargon check. Microgravity is what is commonly referred to by non-space geeks as weightlessness. For all sorts of reasons, you are not weightless when you are in space. I'm not going to explain why. You appear to be weightless. You are not. And in any case, gravity is always acting on you. So we call that weightlessness appearance microgravity okay that's what that means now you can achieve microgravity several ways without actually being in orbit around the planet you can do it in a regular aircraft because all you're doing when you're in microgravity really is falling at the same rate as everything around you so if you get in a big plane and fly up to a height and then go into a a dive at a particular angle You will be falling inside the plane at the same speed as the plane is falling. And so relative to your surroundings, you will appear to be flying. You can't do it for very long and it really makes you seasick. And the planes that do this, that are generally used to train astronauts, um, they are nicknamed the vomit comet. Uh, But, you know, that works. And if you watch the movie Apollo 13, some of the scenes in which the the crew of Apollo 13 are floating around inside their space capsule, they were filmed aboard the Vomit Comet. So you can do that. You can also get to altitude, although not microgravity, by strapping your experiment to a a helium balloon, a weather balloon. And that can get you right to the edge of space, it really can. And if you look on YouTube, I'll stick some in the show notes, but if you look on YouTube, you will find any number of really cool videos by like schools who have sent science projects to the edge of space on the bottom of a balloon. And there are always sounding rockets. These are small rockets capable of carrying a very small payload, um, which you shoot up into the sky. They go up very high indeed. You can send sounding rockets, again, into space if you want. Uh, I don't think you could put one in orbit. They're not big enough. But you, you could, you know, and people do. Send sounding rockets on parabolic flights into space and back down again. And you can put science experiments on that. All good and all affordable. And, you know, schools can do that, too. But if you really want to catch people's attention, you really need people directly involved. And there are some experiments that you can only do with people. There are some experiments you can only do with people because they're on people. And, you know, you can't strap a person to the bottom of a weather balloon. Well, you can, but it's really not advised. And you certainly can't strap a person to a sounding rocket; it wouldn't be able to lift them up. But Alan Dean is taking science experiments aboard a Virgin Galactic spaceship too. So there's a man doing experiments, doing proper science in a crude space vehicle. That's a vehicle, not 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 one that tells dirty jokes. A space vehicle that has crew aboard. Um, English language is strange, isn't it? Um, That's fabulous. Now, I've done a little bit looking into this. There's not that much information available right now, but it looks as though it would be possible to put a small science experiment aboard a Blue Origin spacecraft or a Virgin Galactic spacecraft for prices starting around about eight grand. Now, that's not an insignificant amount of money, but Relative to anything else that will take you to space? That's peanuts. And I'll tell you what else it is. It's achievable for small organisations and schools and colleges and especially universities. Okay. now, if you work in education, I can see the colour your face has just turned. But bear with me and I'll explain. Back in the distant past, when I was a teacher, I ran the Rocket Club at my school. It was huge fun. We built real rockets using real rocket fuel. We weren't allowed to make our own rocket fuel. Don't ever try that at home, folks. It's actually not difficult to do, but don't do it. There is a very fine line between that particular science project and acts that could be deemed preparatory to terrorism. So don't make explosives is what I'm saying. Um, We thought about doing it as as the rocket club, actually, because it's basic chemistry. But we got a nice letter from South Yorkshire police saying, please don't. Uh, I've still got it somewhere. They were very understanding. Anyway. And when I was running the rocket club at my school, we had a project. The idea, we, we, were th- we were thinking at the time of using a weather balloon, but what we wanted to do was design uh, an, an automated little ship, flying thing, um, to be released from the bottom of a aforementioned balloon, balloon that would then automatically fly itself back to our school field. There was no actual reason why we couldn't have done it. The technology absolutely exists for us to have done that. We could have got the expertise to help us that we would have needed. For various reasons, it didn't happen, largely because I left the school before we got a chance to make it work. But it could have been done. It would have cost us, cost us a couple of thousand pounds, I think. Uh, and I'm absolutely confident we could have raised that money. It would have taken an awful lot of doing backpacking in supermarkets, And jumble sales and sponsored walks and all the other things that school kids have done throughout history to raise money. But I'm confident we could have raised it. And I'm absolutely certain that if some enterprising teacher wants to put together a science project that can go aboard a Virgin Galactic plane or a Blue Origins rocket, I'm absolutely confident they'll be able to raise eight grand to do that. Absolutely confident. A bit of sponsorship from local business, some sponsored events, um, maybe put on a benefit concert. You know, these things are doable with schools. And the idea that a school, just a regular high school, could put something that they'd designed and built into space, even if it's only for 11 minutes, and do actual science, the level of inspiration that that can bring. Is just mind-blowing. I I hope you can hear the enthusiasm in my voice because this is a proper game-changer and I am a very happy geek to be able to report this. I'm not a scientist. I was an English teacher. I am an amateur engineer. I build rockets in my spare time. I like building rockets, they're cool. I was inspired to do this by watching the Space Shuttle when I was nine or ten. And I know a lot of engineers who are currently working at NASA and at ESA and at JAXA, probably not Roscosmos, but they were probably inspired by the Soviets, um, who were inspired by the same thing, who grew up watching Shuttle. And the people who built the Space Shuttle, they were in high school and in college when Apollo and Mercury were happening. But can you imagine how... Much more powerful the inspiration would be if, aged 13, as you're about to start doing your science GCSEs, you get to be involved in designing a physics experiment that actually flies in space. You did it, you didn't watch somebody else do it. You did it. If we want to inspire a new generation of engineers and scientists, I can't think of a better way of doing it, can you? So, yeah. Terrible Bond villains they might be, but Bezos and Branson, if they can actually make this a thing, yeah, yeah, they've earned some cool points. I'd be happier if they paid their taxes so that it would be easier to fund these things, but that's a discussion for another time. They have done, or are potentially doing at least, a good thing. So... If you are listening to this and you are in school or you are at university and you are studying some kind of science, have a think about what you'd like to centre space and see if you can actually make it happen. Go for it. It's becoming possible. And if you told 15 year old me that back in the, uh, the, the mid 80s, I would have grabbed an opportunity like that with both hands. And my career would probably have been different. Back in my teaching days, my rocket club, which actually had a very cool acronym name, but I'm not going to use it because that would involve telling you the name of the school and I don't want to do that. Um, But my rocket club had a very cheesy motto. But I think it applies here. We said the sky is not a limit. That's increasingly true in this field. So um, we'll keep an eye on this. Uh, Yeah, come back next week uh, and in subsequent weeks, and I'll keep you informed about how it's going. Because genuinely, I'm I'm genuinely excited about this. Anyway, there is all the space stuff, but again, we've been talking about space for a long time now, and I'd like to squeeze in just a couple of other things. So that's it for space from this week. And so on to geeky television news. Um, I don't have much for you. I haven't seen Marvel's What If yet, but by all accounts, it's very, very good. So um, you might want to check that out if you have Disney+. Plus. If you don't have Disney+, Plus, honestly, you might want to consider it. There is an awful lot of good stuff on there, and they're not even paying me to say that. At the moment, I am juggling my streaming services, as I'm sure many of you are. I, I don't like the idea that I have to pay for a bunch of streaming services all at once, but then I haven't got time to watch a bunch of streaming services all at once. So in fact, what I do is I get a month of one and then cancel it and then get a month of another and watch what I want on there and cancel it. And I just keep them on rotation and it's reasonably cost effective. So there's a bit of advice. The only bit of TV news that I really want to mention is the confirmation that both J D Whittaker and Chris Chibnall are to leave Doctor Who at the end of the next series. I think there's going to be like a series and then a couple of specials. Uh, and the finale, where presumably JD Whittaker regenerates into somebody else, uh, is set to be part of like a big shindig for the BBC's 100th anniversary. I'm not surprised by this. Uh, I'm disappointed. I'm, I'm not surprised by all the cheering from that particular section of fandom. I'm Disappointed in it, but I'm not surprised, and I'm not surprised that Jodie Whittaker is leaving. Three seasons seems to be the standard now for the tenure of a Doctor. I, I think you've got to go, you've got to go back to Tom Baker really to find someone who's done longer. And because of the way things have panned out with COVID and you know production being delayed and all that kind of thing, she will have been the Doctor. For about five years, which is a long time to be tied to to a particular role if you are a professional actor. Um, I mean, once you've been the Doctor, you will forever be former Doctor Who star before you're anything else. And, you know, actors do need to avoid being typecast. So I'm not surprised that Jodie Whittaker is leaving. I'm sad because I wanted a lot more. I don't care what various people have said. She is one of my very favourite Doctors. Um, she's in my perpetually rotating top three. Um, my favourite Doctor for a long time, for what it's worth, was uh, Peter Davison, the fifth Doctor. He was sort of half pushed out and became my joint favourite Doctor when Capaldi took over, because I adored Capaldi and still do as the Doctor. But that's something about the quality that Jodie Whittaker brings, which... I don't know, it just works for me. I've loved her as the Doctor. I will be very, very sad to see her go. I appreciate there will be many people who will be very glad to see the back of her. And honestly, I hope you enjoy the next iteration of Doctor Who as much as I've enjoyed this one. I don't want to get into a big fight about it. If something's not for you, it's not for you, that's fine. Um, So yeah, that's it for the TV. And finally, we will very quickly get to this. Yes, it's comics, and um, let's start with a very quick review of Batman: Urban Legends, Issue Six, the comic in which Tim Drake comes out as boy. Um, I can't sell you a copy of this because, as I said earlier, I have in fact sold out. Uh, but what is Batman: Urban Legends? It's an anthology title. Um, it's nicely. It's it's, it's a pristine what what would have once been called prestige format. Um, the Urban Legends series is square-bound, not stapled. It's got proper cardstock covers um, and is consequently really expensive. 5 99 for a comic. I, honestly, I sell comics for a living and I think that's too expensive. But never mind. I'm also a massive victim and so of course I could like this. Um, it's an anthology title. It contains several stories, some one-offs, some serialised across Various issues. Um, they're all good. It's a bit cheeky, though. Because they must have known when they selected their cover design for this issue that the story about Tim Drake was going to have ruffled some feathers and attracted some attention. And they have put Batman and Robin, dressed in the original ridiculous Robin costume, on the cover. But it's not Tim, it's Jason. Because the the first story in this issue of Batman Urban Legends is the end of a story about the relationship between Bruce and Jason, Batman and the Red Hood, which is fractious for all kinds of reasons. Um, Jason died at the hands of the Joker. And when he came back from the dead, don't ask, it's comics, people get better. Uh, he was genuinely unable to understand how come the Joker was still alive, why the Batman hadn't killed the Joker. Not necessarily for revenge for Jason's death, but just to make sure he didn't do it again. And, you know, Jason has always been a much more violent, much more Machiavellian character than any of the other Bat family. And that coloured his relationship with the Batman, that resentment colored his relationship with the Batman for a long time. This story is about how Jason finds some acceptance. And it's a beautiful story, actually. And I think, probably in terms of character development, actually more significant than the one about Tim. So there you go. Set it. So that's Batman Urban Legends. It's a genuinely good series. I will try and get more copies of issue six in. I have copies of one to five that are available. I suspect Issue 6 is going to be hard to get for a while, as lots of people jump on bandwagons. But we'll see. We'll see. Maybe people will be sensible. I've seen no evidence that people are capable of that thus far, but you never know. Anyway, other comics. I mentioned it last week, and it's definitely a pick of the week this week. Batman 89. Now, I'm the right age for this. I was in my late-ish teens in 1989 when... Tim Burton's classic Batman came out. This comic is written by Sam Hamm, the guy who wrote the screenplay for Batman. Uh, He also wrote the um, Batman 50th anniversary special comic, which was awful, but Batman's really good, and so is Batman 89. Um, Very good artist, um, Joe Quinone. I am going to have pronounced that wrong. Apologies to him. Uh, But however you pronounce his last name, very good artist for this project. It looks stunning. stunning. Really does. Beautiful, beautiful artwork. Um, What we've got is basically a story that is pulling on a couple of the threads of the movie. Um, What we've got is a Gotham that is beginning to be divided as citizens dressed as either as the Batman or the Joker fight it out in the streets. District Attorney Harvey Dent is trying to keep things together. And in doing so, he targets what he thinks is the source of the problem. Batman. And he wants Bruce Wayne to help him take down the Dark Knight. It's really good stuff. It's brilliant. I cannot tell you how much I have enjoyed issue one. It's brilliantly written. It's just an excellent, excellent piece of work. Um, And I'm also just going to throw out there uh, a comic called Campisi the Dragon Incident because the concept made me chuckle. And again, it's a beautifully executed piece of work. I want you to imagine a small-time fixer for the mob. That's Sonny Campisi. He's, you know, a small-time player. He's the guy that's coming around with a baseball bat if you don't pay your gambling debts. He's the guy who's going to get a little bit of rough with you if you get rough with the girls, if you know what I'm saying. He's a reliable foot soldier for the mob, but that's all he is. You know, he's no hero. He's no superhero. And then a dragon flies into town, and the mob bosses tell Sonny to get that sorted. And, yeah, that's buying off a little bit more than... He was expecting to have to chew, and what you end up with is a comedy thriller. It's it's part Get Shorty, it's part Goodfellas, a um, little bit of Dragon Slayer in there, and it's just brilliant. Okay, it's massive, massive, massive fun. Um, it knows exactly what it is. Uh, If this was a movie, I would go and see this movie. It isn't a movie, it's a comic book, and I absolutely bought this book. It's just, again, another one of those wonderfully refreshing stories that's coming out right now that just wants you to have a good time. And, my goodness, we can all do with that. So, one comic that I enjoyed but can't sell you, two comics that I absolutely recommend. Go to your local comic store, even if it's not us, and check out Batman 89 and Campisi because, honestly, you'll be sad if you don't. Okay, that is very nearly it for this week. I think we managed to fit in just about everything. I did actually drop a segment so that I could rant about Tim Drake a little bit longer in this re-record, but other than that, I think we got in pretty much everything I wanted to fit in couple of bits of admin and housekeeping before we go if you've been listening to the show you will know that this coming saturday the 14th of august was supposed to be free comic book day and if you live outside harrogate it still might be where you are at destination venus we have decided to move free comic book day back to august the 28th still a saturday we've done that because various shipping issues mean not all of the free comic book day comics are in my possession as I talk to you now. And I didn't want to do it, you know, without everything available. So free comic book day, no catch. You can come to Destination Venus on Saturday, August the 28th, and we will have a selection of specially produced comics that you can just take for free. No purchase necessary. Won't try and sell you nothing. If you choose to buy something while you're there, I won't be mad. But honestly. The idea is to put comics into the hands of people who might not normally pick them up, or to get people who do read comics to pick up something different. Try something new. It won't cost you a penny. But it's not on August the 14th, as advertised It's on August the 28th. That's the first bit of stuff. Um, quick mention on the Geek Community Cork Board. The Geek Pub Quiz is still on hiatus as the geek pub quiz master and mistress are both away engaged in other things but the geek bar is thinking of bringing back its sunday night quiz and we all love a bit of a geeky quiz so get yourself over to either the geek bar's re- website or their social medias or just go and have a look at the geek bar it's a nice place uh, and check out more details there and that's just about it for this week um What's another solo show? I haven't, as I speak to you, yet arranged with Alice to continue our discussion on The Lord of the Rings. I will get that sorted at some point this week. I also am trying to line up a couple of other discussions and interviews, so stay tuned. For those, you won't just have to listen to me and nobody else. I promise. All that remains for me is to say that Geeking with Destination Venus is a copyright feature of Venus Rising Media and is proudly made and engineered in Yorkshire. We'll see you next week. Until then, be kind to yourself, be kind to absolutely everybody else, until we meet again, to go geeking!